morning, and I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would speak to our hearts and minds and souls. In Jesus' name, amen. If God is a God of love, why is there evil in the world? If God is the God of the church, why is there evil in the church? If God is the Lord of my life, why am I assailed by evil? Why doesn't God do something about it? Well, Jesus tackles these age-old questions with a simple story. And as is so often the case with Jesus' simple stories... They're full of surprises and challenges. Eight weeks from today will be the 10th anniversary of the terrorist attacks against this nation in New York, Washington, D.C., and over the skies of our own state. And shortly after that terrible attack on 9-11, the president, speaking in the National Cathedral, declared, the mission of our nation is clear. We must rid the world of evil. A tough, noble, bold statement that I imagine most decent law-abiding people the world over agreed with. And yet here's the first surprise as we put that against Jesus' story. It seems to be at odds with what Jesus is saying in this story about wheat and weeds. The disciples' reaction in the face of evil was, like the world's, like the president's, like ours, I suspect, we must get rid of the weeds. We must get rid of evil. But Jesus says, not so fast. And though I believe this and every nation is right to stand against evil and to pursue justice, if necessary, to the ends of the earth, we will never actually succeed in ridding the world of evil. God's sovereign rule over his world is not quite as straightforward as we might imagine or like it to be. This parable is not a mandate for rooting out evil. Rather, in large part, it's about being patient and humble in the face of evil. Now, that's not to say that this story is indifferent to evil. Far from it. It's some very, it has some very strong things to say about judgment and justice. But that comes after the waiting and the humility. So let's take a look at this parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in a field. And the field, Jesus later explains, is the world. The world in which the Son of Man has sown good seed. A world that was created by God and was good. But in this world, an enemy has come. And Jesus names the enemy, the devil. Intent upon sabotaging all that is good. Verse 25, but while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And you'll notice in this story, the enemy does not sow his evil seeds in in this next field over there, leaving all the good seed over here a good chance. No. We may think that the major work of our enemy, the devil, is concentrated in the world And yet here Jesus describes the evil one sowing his seed in the midst of the good seed. But what to do about it? 
The workers want to take swift action. Verse 28, then do you want us to go and gather them? Shall we rip out the weeds? And the reply is no. Because in gathering the weeds, you'll uproot the wheat along with them. And this is why we have to be so very careful in how we respond to evil. This is why we need to pray for the leaders of the nations and our own nation as they try and respond appropriately to evil in whatever form it comes against us, whether in the form of heinous crimes or terrorism or corporate or political corruption and exploitation. The truth is there is a very real, serious, dangerous war raging all around us. It is a war between good and evil. And there are some things that we can say about this war. First, and most important of all, we know how it will end. We know who wins. Truth and justice, righteousness and goodness will utterly defeat and eradicate the world of evil in the end. God wins. That is not under threat. That is not uncertain. That is absolutely true. Indeed, God has already won the ultimate victory over sin and death and hell. That victory is one that is decisive and has been made once and for all through Christ's death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. The end is certain, but the end has not yet come. We continue to wait for Christ's coming again. We still wait for the final glory to be revealed. And while we wait, the enemy carries on fighting viciously his rearguard action, sowing weeds, stirring up the kind of hatred and hopelessness that can turn young men and women into suicide bombers, that can cause people, even nice people, to speak and do unspeakable harm to others. And as we look at the world, as we ponder human tragedy or as we stop and consider the church, whether locally or nationally, as we look at our own lives, we see contradictions. We experience pain and struggles and disappointments, and we often long for everything just to be put right. If only we could get rid of evil, if we could purge the world of evil, if we could get rid of the people that are leading others astray, the people that are tearing the world and the church apart, wouldn't life be so much better? Well, yes, it would. But that's not how it is. And so we may be tempted in our frustration to doubt God's sovereignty, to doubt that victory for us by Christ on the cross. And the people of Jesus' day shared similar frustrations. They had expected and longed for and prayed for and looked for a revolution that would lead to the overthrow of the occupying oppressive Roman armies. But the revolution that Jesus brought about was of a different kind. And this parable of the wheat and the weeds spells out just what sort of action the people were looking for. And I suspect that many of us would like to see, namely the weeding out now of all evil and evildoers. And Jesus' answer to this is clear. Yes, there will be a final weeding out of evil. Absolutely. But not yet. Not yet. Patience is called for. I hate patience. I hate being patient. Anyway, that's just an aside. But there it is. And as we wait, the wheat that is 
those that respond to Jesus must be allowed to grow without disturbance until harvest. And it's very clear that until Jesus comes again, good and evil will continue to exist in our world. Although, ultimately, they will be separated out. I'm no gardener, so I'm very grateful to Andy Cohn for his explanation of the bearded Darnell and the, and the wheat and how they look the same. And uh, uh, thank you, Andy. Um, and of course, as he rightly said to the children, part of the reason for this waiting is that we can't tell sometimes which is which. And by the time we can, the roots have become intertwined. And it's like that for us in so many ways. We're sometimes not so good at knowing what is of God and what is not. Many things may seem good and wholesome, but then subsequently turn out not to be so. And all too often, we are terrible judges of character. Uh, Many years ago, uh, an American bishop, uh, before the days of air travel, was sailing for England on one of those great transatlantic ocean liners. And when he went on board, he found... uh, that another passenger was to share his cabin with him. And so after going to check out his cabin, he, he went up to the purser's desk and inquired if he could leave his gold watch and other valuables in the ship's safe. He explained that ordinarily he, he never availed himself of that privilege, but he'd been to the cabin and met the man who was to occupy the other berth. And judging from his appearance, he was afraid he, he might not be a very trustworthy person. The purser accepted the responsibility for the valuables and remarked, It's all right, Bishop. I'll be glad to take care of them for you. The other man has already been up and left his valuables for exactly the same reason. (laughs) We need to be slow to judge others. And I was in preparing this, I, I finished that sentence with saying, particularly in the world. And then I thought, no, that's not right. It should be particularly in the church. And I thought, no, that's not right. Let's just not qualify it. We need to be very careful when we go around judging other people. That is not what we're called to do. Because there will be wheat and weeds growing alongside each other, and we may not know which is which. And even if we do, or we think we do, if we start getting heavy-handed, casting aside the weeds, the wheat will very likely get damaged in the process. There will be genuine Christian people alongside those who are not. And our job is not to go on a witch hunt uprooting the weeds. God will sort that out in due time. Now, having said that, the parable should not be taken as meaning that evil doesn't matter or that we should not do what we can to resist evil, whether that be in the world or the church or in our own lives. We know from elsewhere in scripture that Jesus urges us to take drastic action against evil. At a personal level, you remember earlier in Matthew's gospel, he vividly speaks of if an eye causes you to to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Now, okay, that's hyperbole, but the point is we're to take it seriously. And on a church level, Jesus teaches that if a brother or sister refuses to be reconciled with you, refuses when you go with another, when you bring it to the church, the time comes where that person may even have to be excluded. These are extremes, but it it illustrates the importance and the seriousness of evil. Personal and church discipline are both very important and have for too long been largely ignored in many churches. And I think we've seen that played out very starkly 
in the Episcopal Church over recent years. And in the light of that, we have made our stand here. But let me add this. Lest we foolishly or arrogantly think that we in the Anglican Church in North America are now free of all wrongdoing or thinking, this parable warns us against expecting perfection this side of Judgment Day. Our church family, right here today, this morning in Church of the Ascension, and by extension, all of the Christian believers in the world, is going to continue to be a messy place. And I'm sorry that that's how it is, but that is how it is. A field in which there will be wheat and there will be weeds. And yet in this, our parable is a reminder that God will not be mocked. And Jesus spells out the destiny of those who rebel against God. There will ultimately be divine judgment. And it's made plain in very graphic terms with the picture of a furnace of fire. And in the story of the the, the weeds being eventually, yes, pulled up, separated out, bundled up, thrown into the fire. And then when Jesus explains it, he says, and that's how it will be for people. This picture of a furnace of fire and of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now it is a picture. And we fail to do justice to it if we don't recognize pictorial language as pictorial. But it's no less serious for it. Whatever that picture means, it's a terrible picture. It's a picture of total separation from God for those who continue to reject him. God is just. God is righteous. God is holy. And none of that is incompatible with God being patient slow to anger, merciful and loving. Because he is righteous, he will not forever tolerate evil. And the awful reality of judgment stares at us from this parable. And I want to add this also. Jesus tells us these things not so that we can gloat over the fate of those wicked evil outsiders. Rather, he is giving us a warning to those who consider ourselves to be insiders. It's a rather sobering uh, to see in verse 41 where Jesus is explaining this parable that he refers to the angels collecting all causes of sin and evildoers out of his kingdom. The point being that while a field is the world, the two crops growing in it as a result of the two types of seed that have been sown are not separated but intermingled. The weeds are in the midst of the wheat. The children of the devil are in the company of the children of the kingdom of God. And sure, there are clear enemies of God out there in the world, but there are also enemies within. And that's why life in the church and life in the world is not as black and white as you and I might like it to be or as others might tell us it is. The kingdom of God has been brought about by Jesus. And yet we live in this in-between stage of growth with the wheat growing alongside the weeds. And our job is not to focus on the weeds. We can leave that to Jesus. Instead, let us focus on growing strong, healthy, fruitful wheat. Let us keep on sowing the good seed of God's saving love everywhere that we can. And we need to ensure that our own lives are like the good soil in the parable that we had last week. We can have hope 
we can be encouraged in the knowledge that despite all that is wrong in the world, despite the present suffering and evil, the kingdom of God is at work and will ultimately triumph. St. Paul in our epistle reading this morning writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. And that's not because the sufferings of the present time are inconsequential or minor, not at all. It's just by comparison to the future glory. Ask a mother how the joys of her new baby compare to the pains of childbirth, and she'll tell you that they don't compare. Yes, pain and suffering and evil are part and parcel of our daily lives. The groans that we make as we struggle with evil, wherever we encounter it, need not, however, be groans of despair, but of hope. And so we find ourselves, today, tomorrow, throughout the week, living in the midst of wheat and weeds, caught in the tension between that which Christ has inaugurated through Jesus and the giving of his Holy Spirit, and what he will consummate in our final redemption. We groan with discomfort and longing, but the Holy Spirit who lives in us gives us joy, and the coming glory gives us hope, even as for now we may experience difficulties. We will not be free from this pain until we go to be with God or until he comes again. And our groans should express both our present pain and our future longing. I think some Christians don't actually groan enough. They seem to have no theology for pain or suffering, and everything ought to be just lovely. Humbug, it's not. But of course, the opposite is also true. I encounter some Christians who seem experts at the groaning. And the kind of groaning that they excel at has no sense of longing for the future, just a miserable wallowing in their past or present woes, real or perceived. What we should be doing, St. Paul tells us, is waiting eagerly for what lies ahead for the final fulfillment of God's promises. John Stott puts it like this. We are to wait neither so eagerly that we lose patience, nor so patiently that we lose our expectation, but eagerly and patiently together. And as we wait, we press on towards the goal, putting our energy into being healthy wheat, bearing fruit, and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, maybe even 100-fold. No matter how frustrated you may be with all the weeds, no matter how difficult your circumstances may be, don't despair. Don't give up. Good will triumph over evil. God has and is and will do more than we can ask or imagine. We know how this story ends, and it's a very good ending. Thanks be to God. Amen.